Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series on the book of Revelation as he speaks from Revelation 14 through 16 about what it means to hold on and be strong in the Lord. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. Amen. Standing in victory. Welcome, Impact Church. How are you doing this morning, everybody? Good? I hope y'all are as excited to be in the house of the Lord as I am this morning. We've got a good one today, and I hope you have been in anticipation of it as we get ready to climb through the rest of Revelation here. This will be about the, the fastest our helicopter will fly. Remember at the beginning I told you we were going to fly a helicopter over Revelation, not a jet. Um, it'll feel a little more like a jet today because it's the fastest and most material we'll cover. But then also for, um, for those of you that are interested in preparation, it's looking like there's probably going to be after today maybe three more messages of Revelation, possibly four. Um, and, and then we'll be uh, complete. So we will move along at a little faster pace here at the end, uh, of course, and then we'll have a separate Easter message. So those of you that are uh, excited about Revelation, you still got four more weeks. Uh, um, those of you that are like, when are we going to get through Revelation? You only got four more weeks. So whatever way you want to look at it, there it is. We're going to get started and start uh, digging right in. So the message today is, as we go through chapters 14, 15, and even 16 of Revelation, is going to be, hold on, be strong. Hold on, be strong. You'd be like, how do you get that out of Revelation? You're going to see, all right? A lot of times when you speak of the book of Revelation or even mention it or, or mention that we're, we're preaching on it, the immediate thought of people, of most people, for the end times and the tribulation is thoughts of turmoil, mushroom cloud explosions, persecution, the mark of the beast. And that's what they think about. And that's what they think all of Revelation is. And they start thinking that it's all just about all kinds of stories of, of disaster, like your in-laws are getting ready to move in with you or something, all right? <laughs> but there's more in here than that. So much more. You see, this revelation of Jesus is one that is not supposed to give us apprehension. It's not supposed to make us confused because many are confused by this book. And as you've seen, and as I hope you've seen and been with us, that there's clarity in this book and that there is no confusion in here. And we're going to see that even in chapter 17 and 18, some of the most argued about and confused chapters in Revelation, the Bible actually gives clarity on. We're going to see that. I'm excited to bring that to you next week. All right. But it's not here to give us apprehension or confusion. It's actually here to give us confidence in Christ, to give us confidence in our Lord, to give us confidence in his word, that it is truth and that there's nothing that's gray or unclear in it. It's to give us hope and faith in the only one that can see us through even the most hardest, difficult, unimaginable times that you and I might even face on this earth right now, even before a tribulation is even thought of in this world. Christ is faithful, and he is able. Ultimately, revelation also is to keep us focused on the big picture, and we've talked about this, that this is not our home, guys. 
Oh no, I hope you know that. You're just passing through. If you're living your best life now, you're not going to heaven. <laughs> because your best life is later if you're in Christ. Can I just tell you that? This isn't your best life now. It's coming in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're living your best life now. You better enjoy it while you're here. So it's to give us the big picture and to keep us focused on Jesus and what really matters. To have an eternal mindset. To know that God's still on his throne. He's in control no matter what we may face in our life. So that's what we're going to see God point to today in a message to his people is to encourage them and tell them to hold on to be strong in their faith in light of the circumstances they're facing that aren't going to be very pleasant. So the application for us today is I want you to think about and grasp as we go through this and we gain clarity of context and we learn the Bible today. I want you to think application. What circumstances, what difficult times, what trials are you facing right now in your life? Or maybe that you might start facing tomorrow that you don't even know about yet. What are you facing, are you going to face that you need encouragement from the Lord today that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and that he has victory for you, for me, for everybody who repents and claims the name of Jesus and lives for him, that we are promised to stand in victory over anything our enemy or this world can throw at us. So who needs that message today to hold on and be strong? Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, because we know your word gives life. Your word changes hearts and lives through your spirit moving in us. So Lord, would you teach us today? Lord, allow me to present the clarity that you've given me in the study for these weeks that we've been in this. And Father, to present this, Father, Lord, in such a way that it just moves people's hearts and minds, Lord, through your spirit. And Lord, that none of us would leave here the same, that we would all be different, changed. We would have a new focus, a new mindset, a, a, a new motivation, a new encouragement to be strong, to hold on and stand for you. So Lord, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do through your word, and you get all the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you have a copy of God's word. You can turn to the book of Revelation, and we're going to start in chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 6 through 13 here in a second. But I want to start with this, because before we dive in, we really have to understand where we're at and what's going on right here, okay? We have to grasp this for this to make sense, okay? First of all, how many of you go to movies in the movie theater? Anybody like to go to movies in the movie theater? How many of you can still afford to go to movies in the movie theater? That's what I thought, all right? So anyway, so when we go to the movie, like you say the movie starts at 7, what time's the actual movie going to start? Yeah, 7.15, 7.20, seems like it gets a little later every time now. Because what are you going to see for 15 or 20 minutes? Previews, movie trailers, stuff that's coming soon to a theater near you, right? (laughs) 
So we, you're, we're used to these ideas of trailers and getting a, a preview of what's to come. Ladies and gentlemen, church, God is going to give us this and his people right here in chapter 14. What you're getting is a movie trailer. This is what confuses people when they try to read the book of Revelation. If they try to put chapter 14 in a timeline, you get all jacked up and confused because it's talking about stuff that hasn't taken place yet. It's getting ready to come in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, okay? But it hasn't happened yet. So what God is doing, he's giving them a movie trailer to encourage them to say, hold on, be strong. All right? So we have to grasp that because we know that we're in an interlude phase of Revelation. Remember, we talked about that interlude phase. Once we came through six, uh, the six trumpets, we said we entered this interlude phase for a minute, okay? And, and we're chapter uh, 10 and, and then even 11, all right? So chapter 11 talked about the witnesses, the two witnesses that would come on the scene, okay? And that how the temple would be rebuilt. That happened in the first half of the tribulation. So that chapter 11, chapter 10, chapter 11 was an interlude telling us stuff we needed to know about the first half of the tribulation. Then at the end of chapter 11, we had the seventh trumpet, that's when we talked about now the next interlude in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is the interlude giving us information we need to know about the second half of the tribulation that's coming, okay? Does that make sense? So that way you have the timeline of Revelation correct. So here we're still in this interlude. Now this interlude, of course, follows chapter 12 where we learned about Satan, the dragon. You remember that? And, and we learned how he was against the woman who is Israel and he hates the woman and he hates Israel and he's trying to attack her from the very start. But then at this midpoint of the tribulation, there's this war in heaven and Satan gets kicked out of heaven. In other words, he never has access there anymore. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to that message. Right now, Satan still has access to the throne room of God, and he accuses you and me every single day and night. Did you know that? Does. All right? So now he's going to get kicked out, and he knows his time's short. So what does he do? He gets fired up. And that's where the, the, the heavens tells the earth, say, woe to the earth, because Satan's coming and he's fired up in all his wrath. So he comes down to earth. He tries to attack Israel, all right? So the abomination of desolation happens. Jesus had already told the people in Matthew 24, when you see that happen, when he sets himself up in the temple and tells you to worship him, you better run, baby. Don't go back and get your junk. You know what I'm saying? It's time to hightail it to the hills and get there. And they probably go to a place called Petra. Satan tries to go after them and attack them. He can't get to them. The earth swallows the armies up that he sends after to attack Israel. He gets fired up. So what does he do? He knows he can't get the people that went to Petra, so he turns his wrath on the rest of the saints on earth. Okay? That's chapter 12. So then how's he do it? Chapter 13. That was last week. That was our boy Boss Hog and Roscoe Pico train. Y'all remember that? All right? So that was the Antichrist and the false prophet. Okay? So that's how he raises them up to go hot pursuit, baby, after God's people. You there? You with it? It's not that hard to understand. So now it's chapter 14 because Boss Hogg and Roscoe are in hot pursuit. Now God comes in chapter 14 and he's going to give some encouragement. You ready? Now you know where we're at. We had to get there. Here's our movie trailer. All right. Telling them about what's to come, giving them encouragement. Because what we're going to see is not only this timing, but each one of these statements that are going to be given by three angels are what we call proliptic statements. All right, 
Does anybody know what a proliptic statement is? Proliptic statement is stating something as a fact that hasn't happened yet, all right? So it's something that's gonna come, but you state it in the foreground as a fact, and it's just as much a fact as if it had already happened, all right? Describing an event taking place before it ever happens, a future event. So let's read now, now that we know what's going on. We're gonna start in verse six, because we did verse one through five kind of last week and looked at that, and we'll touch on that a little bit, but let's just start reading in verse six. It says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. All right, so this chapter, again, is a preview of what's ahead. It starts in verse one through five, which we didn't read today, of the 144,000. John has the vision of them in heaven. Again, we're at the midpoint of the tribulation. The beast is just starting to attack and set up the mark and do all this stuff. All the 144,000 are not dead yet. Some of them may be, but not all of them. So that starts our preview when John sees them all in heaven. Does that make sense? So he's seeing it at the end of the tribulation where they all have died as martyrs for the faith, sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? So we already get this idea that 14 is a vision of what hasn't happened yet, but is about to happen, okay? So then in verse six, this vision shifts back to earth, okay? And we're gonna see, John sees these three angels flying across the sky, and they're making these dramatic, climactic statements, all right? And these are proliptic statements again, talking about what's to come in the next few chapters. So essentially what we're gonna get is a pep talk, all right? Everybody been on a sports team? You got a, a good pep talk maybe from your coach at halftime or from a team captain in the little huddle before you take the quarter to field? How about a pep rally? You all been a part of that. Even if you didn't play sports, you had to go to a pep rally and everybody got all pumped up and excited for something that's about to come, the big game, all right? So we're gonna get this here in this passage. So let's look at the first angel in verse six, all right? And this first angel comes on the scene having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth. Okay, hold up. 
Where in the Bible has an angel ever been assigned to preach the gospel? Nowhere. Hasn't. Who has been assigned to share the gospel and spread the good news? The church. (laughs) Hey, the church is God's plan A. You know what I'm saying? That's why it's important to get involved, to get plugged in, to be a part of the body of Christ. It's God's plan for restoration and redemption for the world, to share Jesus in his word. That's why we don't just, eh, I don't know if I want to go to church today. Yeah, you better want to go to church. If you don't want to go to church on earth, why do you want to spend eternity with him in heaven? Get a part of the plan now, okay? All right? So, man, it's plan A, but here an angel's going to preach. What? Some think this to be an only instance in the Bible where an angel's given this responsibility. That could be. God is able to do whatever he wants to do, okay? He could assign that one to preach, all right? But check this out. God is actually going to use this to speak to the saints. We're going to see that. We're going to prove that by God's word today, all right? Some believe that this fulfills actual prophecy of Jesus when he said that the whole gospel will be preached to the ends of the world and then the end will come. You remember that from Jesus' own words there in in, uh, the Olivet Discourse there? So some believe this is the fulfillment of that. Could be. But it's not, all right? And we're going to see why, okay? First of all, let's look at why. If I'm going out to preach the gospel so people can be saved, what's the number one thing as far as the New Testament goes that I'm going to be telling people? What name is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved? Jesus. Is his name spoken right there? No? Okay. So there's a big kind of red flag all right, Jesus didn't mention not even his death, his resurrection, his uh, substitution, taking our place for our sin, nothing. There's no call to repentance. Everywhere in the New Testament, and especially if you looked at the book of Revelation, everywhere where Jesus is calling people to get their life right, to be saved, what is the number one thing that's said? Repent. That's it. Repent. It's an attitude of a, a change of heart that leads to a change of mind, that leads to a change of action. Repentance. There's no call here to it. How about this one? It's all through the New Testament. There's no exhortation here to believe or have faith. Everywhere you read, it's believe. John 3, 16. Everywhere. Believe. There's no call to believe here or have faith. So what are these people called to do? What is this angel saying? They're called to fear God and give him glory in light of the upcoming judgment. Do you see that? Fear God and give him glory even in the midst of the judgment that's about to come. So in other words, a portion of the gospel is being preached, all right? There's only one gospel, but there's many portions or aspects of it. So this angel is emphasizing the eternal aspect of the gospel, that God is sovereign, that he's in control, okay? And therefore, he is to be feared, reverenced, to give him glory, okay? So let's keep that in mind. We still don't have proof yet, but let's, let's dig farther because this is where we're going to get it. All right. It says that the angel is speaking to those who live on the earth. Did you catch that? Those who dwell on the earth. Now, if you look in the Greek, which I have this little app on my phone that gives you the Greek, and you look at that, they use a a, um, Strong's Greek word number 2596, which is the Greek word katokeo 
which actually means to dwell or to reside permanently, okay? So that's what the word is in your King James, in your Bible. That's why it says dwell or to live. Here's the problem. It's a bad translation. You'd be like, hold up. It's a bad translation. Did you know when they translated the Bible, even the King James, that they took the original Greek and these group of men sat down and decided kind of how this would be interpreted and laid out, all right? And then they kind of made their decision. So this Greek word was actually changed from the original Greek manuscript. You say, why is that important? I'm going to show you why, okay? This Greek word in the original Greek, if you don't believe me, you can go back and Google. I have screenshots of it if anybody wants to see it. The original Greek word is not the Strong's Greek word 2596, katokeo. It actually should have been the Strong's Greek word 2521, which is kathemai. Kathemai. I told you. Katokeo means to dwell or to reside permanently. Kathemai means to sit. It can mean to live, but most time, every other time that word is used all through the New Testament, it means sit, to be seated. What does that give you the idea of? Hey, anybody ever brought you something or your kids bring in something and you say, hey, mom or dad, what do you want me to do with this? Oh, just sit it on the table right there and I'll get to it in a minute. You see, the idea of sitting gives an idea of temporary and it's about to be moved. When they change the Greek word, they change it incorrectly to something that's permanent residing. So if we change it back the way it should have been, we say it's something that's sitting temporary, what are we now looking at? God speaking to who? The saints on the earth during the time of the tribulation who are just there for a little while. It's not their home, baby. You're just sitting there, you're about to be removed. Oh, don't you love God's word? Come on, man, there's some clarity right there, all right? And if that won't prove it to you, we're going to see it again at the end of the passage. So this angel and the other two angels are addressing saints, not sinners. Therefore, they're giving encouragement to people on earth at this time, temporary assignments to stand for the Lord in the midst of what's coming. Does that make sense now? So he's encouraging them with the sovereign, eternal aspect of God to hold on, be strong of what's coming. With me? All right, let's keep rocking. It's good stuff. Verse eight, second angel comes on, all right? And he's gonna give another proliptic statement. And I want you to know that each of these statements are not only proliptic, meaning they're talking about something that's gonna happen in the future as if it's a fact and it's already happened. They're gonna be progressive. They're gonna build on each other, okay? So think about, he's encouraging the saints to stand. God's sovereign, he's eternal. Now he's gonna build on it a little bit more. In, in, in each statement here with each angel, okay? Basically telling them their focus needs to be on God and not their circumstances. Did anybody just get a message of application inside there? See, I told you this book ain't just about all doom and gloom. There's application in here for us. If God is trying to get these people in the midst of the worst time in the history of the world, they're in the second half of the tribulation that Jesus called the great tribulation, and he's telling them to be strong, to have encouragement, to stand for the Lord, to not focus on the circumstances. What message and excuse do we have to not do the same? But oh, how little old you and me are so quick to focus on our circumstances. And maybe y'all don't do it. Maybe y'all are more spiritual than me, but I do it a lot. (laughs) And man, it's so easy to get focused on what's going on around me and to get down and, and to lose focus on what really matters and what's eternal and what God wants to do even 
in the midst of the circumstances, that he wants to grow me, he wants to grow you, and he wants to use us as a light in the darkness in the midst of it. So, what does God want to speak to you with that today? To hold on, to be strong. Tell the person beside you right now, it's time to hold on and be strong. I think somebody needs it today. I think somebody's struggling with something because I know I am and I know all most of you are. We live in a world that's troubled, that's hard, that's difficult. And we need to hold on and be strong and have an eternal focus on Jesus. All right? It's all through the New Testament, guys. But what does this angel say in verse 8? Starts off right here and it says... It, something we haven't even been alluded to yet. It says another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Hold up, stop the bus. Who's Babylon? We ain't even talked about Babylon. We've, this is chapter 14. Nobody's even said a word about Babylon. Of course, we cheated a little bit last week. We went into chapter 17, if you remember. We got a little kind of preview and we talked about that. Okay, but up to this point, nobody said anything about Babylon. Who's Babylon? We're going to find out who Babylon is, all right, next week in chapter 17 and 18. But here is this proleptic statement again that Babylon has fallen. Again, it's about to happen. So what is he doing? He's encouraging them. Hey, this evil system that's come at you, all right, and is making you do all these things, they're defeated. And we don't see that defeat until chapter 18. But he's speaking it as if it already happened to encourage them. So actually, this is in the proleptic aorist tense. The aorist tense usually speaks of something that's in the past as a fact. Because we know history is a fact, we can state it definitively. So this is a proleptic statement, but it's spoken in the aorist tense. And still that even though it's about to come, it's as guaranteed as if it's already happening. I'm speaking it to you. They have fallen. In other words, God's already given them a big L, baby. You're going to take an L for the game even starts. How about that? That's victory in Jesus, guys. I don't know what you're facing today, but he's already won. He's already won. So be encouraged. He wants to encourage his people today through these angels right here. That that mystery, great Babylon, they've fallen. This powerhouse, tyrannical system has been defeated. They lose. Hold on. It says here why they've fallen. It says because made the, the earth fall, all right? That she made the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This gives the illusion of he inf- she influenced people into spiritual adultery. What things have we covered so far that you can already point to as spiritual adultery that Mystery Babylon, before you even know who she is, has pushed people to do that spiritual adultery? Worship the beast, take the mark. Remember last week? That's it. That's who she is. So that gives you a little idea about who she is next week. And we're going to see definitively in God's word who that is. Verse 9 through 11, we get the third angel come. And this is where the pep talk and the pep rally really gets strong. Remember, I told you that it builds on each other. All right? It's like, first, stand strong in the Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control, even in this about what's to come. All right? Hey, this great system... Mystery Babylon, they've fallen. He even says it twice to emphasize that they've fallen. They've lost. Don't give in to them. You win. Then this gets even stronger. And what does the third angel sell them in verses 9 through 11? 
If anyone who worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. What is he telling them? Don't take the mark. Don't do it. Encouragement. Why? Because the saints on the earth at this time in the world are under a pressure like you and I have never known and will never see. If you're in Christ, you won't. There is pressure to do something that they know is wrong, but their flesh is weak. How many times do you and I, we know something's wrong, but in the weakness of our flesh, we give in. You ever been there? I have. And that's where this encouragement is to be strong, to resist, to stand. Why? Because if you do take it, first of all, your fate is sealed. It's done. There's no coming back from that, baby. Okay? In other words, you and I today, we mess up, we fail. We're in an age, a dispensation of grace with true repentance, and and we can fall on our knees and and ask for forgiveness and, and 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're in that age, and praise God we are. But this is a different dispensation in the tribulation. This is a dispensation of judgment. So somebody's not going to be able to take the mark and be like, oh, well, Lord, you really know my heart. You know, my, my heart's with you, but my kids are hungry, and, you know, I, I got to go to work, and I got to put gas in my car. And so I just, I did this, but I didn't really mean it. You know what? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Ain't no coming back from that. None. So the encouragement is don't do it. Resist even unto your death. I told you and I've told you and I've told you. In the tribulation, people will, if you come to Christ in the tribulation, you will not only be required to live for him, you will be required to die for him. We have it easy. All God's asking us now is to live for him. And make no mistake, he expects that just as much as he expects them to die for him in the tribulation. God cannot be mocked right now. You want to claim Jesus and live life like you want and live it in sin? You're not living under grace. You're living under deception. Jesus didn't come to give you a free ticket to sin. He came to set you free from the penalty of sin, from the grip of sin, but never free to sin. Our call is to live for Jesus, to be surrendered, to be vessels, to be light, to be salt, all right? But they're gonna be required to pay the ultimate penalty with their life. That's pressure. Because if they don't take the mark, they can't buy and sell. And I think so many times we get caught on that. And if you can go back to last week's message and we can look what the Bible points to as the mark and it's like a tattoo. And there's systems already in place that we alluded to where a tattoo could, could be, can link you to a financial system and all your money. We talked about that last week. Where even a tattoo could give you a vaccine now. Think about that. Think about the pressure they could be under if another virus is unleashed on the earth and people are dying of mass proportions, maybe something 10 times worse than COVID. They're going to want the mark. They're going to, hey, that's a vaccine. That's the only way I can get it. God, come on, man. He's going to say, don't take it. Because there's more to it than that. But you can see where the encouragement can start to come and the push and the pressure like we don't understand. And you can't buy and sell. Think about it. We just think about that. But think about that. If you can't buy and sell, what does that mean? You can't use your money. 
Guys, it goes deeper to that. That means you can't have a job. You'll be fired. You remember back when all the, the shot first came out and some places were making people get a shot? Remember that? And, and some people didn't want to take it, but they, they had to keep their job. I remember seeing pictures of dads in tears taking the injection that they didn't want to do just because they had to feed their family. All right? No, that shot was not the mark or none of that. If you wanted to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you still do, get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. My point is this. We never thought we would come to a point on this earth, especially in our country, where people would be forced to do something like that or lose their job. And we saw it. So the thing is, it can happen, it did happen, and it will happen again to a larger degree. That was just a dress rehearsal. The big show's coming, all right? So they're gonna be under extreme pressure. They're gonna face poverty, isolation. Think about this, you can't use your money, you can't buy gas, you can't drive your car, you're isolated. You can't buy food, your kids are are starving, You're, you're dying. You can't get healthcare. You talk about pressure to do something, so the angel says, don't do it. Hold on. Be strong. I don't think I can say it more passionately than that. That's what we got here. It says, because this full, this wrath will come if you do take it. And what? It alludes to the full strength, this this cup that's full, this full strength cup of God's wrath. And he points to it as wine. It represents with wine. Why would he do that? First of all, if you know anything about making wine, especially in the old days, they put grapes in a wine press, right? And the grapes would be in there, and they would put some, some light people, lighter than me, in there, like women or children, to crush the grapes. Why? Because they wanted to crush the grapes, but they didn't want to crush the seed. Because if you crush the seed, it made the juice bitter. What does that allude to? God will crush under his wrath, but he preserves the seed, the soul, because the soul is eternal torment in hell. So there's one. Second is this. He says it's full strength. Why would God have to even say full strength? Why couldn't he just say wine? Wouldn't that be good enough? This is why. When they drank wine in biblical times, they did not drink wine full strength. When you read God's word and they talk about drinking wine and Jesus turned a bottle into wine, and that's why everybody didn't get drunk at the wedding at Cana, it was not full strength. If you look back in John's day in biblical times, I can give you the data on this. Wine was always diluted three parts water to one part wine to drink. That is, I can look back in the Greek and the Hebrew for the words yayin and onyos and shakar and sikarah. Okay? It wasn't full strength when they drank it. It was always diluted. Why? Because full strength gets you buzzed, gets you drunk very quickly. Okay? And that's why. So that's why it's pointed out here that this wrath was full strength. He was going to make them drink at full strength to knock them out, to knock them down. And, of course, in this case, it was an eternal, pointing to the great white throne judgment where they'd be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? That's why. So verse 12 and 13 in chapter 14. Here it is. Here is the patience of the saints Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Remember we talked about all these proliptic statements were pointing to the saints. Then we just get proof right there. Here's their patience. Here is for the saints. Then he says what? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, he's encouraging them to do all this knowing that they're going to have to give their life. If they don't take the mark, they're going to lose their life in one way or the other. Either through natural causes or through direct persecution and being martyred. It's going to happen. 
but he's telling them, hold on. This whole big system that's been doing all this to you and, and all this evil stuff that's been going on and these evil people, they're defeated. They've lost. Hold on. Be strong. In verse 14 through 20, we're going to read next. What we're going to get now is still another preview, but this preview is going to be to the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus. Let's read that real quick. Verses 14 through 20. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Do you notice the allusion to grapes there? So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. So, we get this preview of the end, of the harvest, okay? The one on the cloud, like the Son of Man. Who would that be? Jesus, okay? And then obviously the angel. So Jesus has the first sickle. And he is going to, with the angels, harvest the saints. Okay? The ones with the second sickle are the angels. Again, by themselves, they are going to harvest the lost. And those are the grapes that will be thrown into the wine press. Here's what's important to realize. This both happens at the same time. Okay? Let me prove that to you in God's word. Turn to Matthew. Chapter 13, we're going to read verse 37 through 43. Matthew chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 37 through 43. All right, and what we're going to see here is a parable that Jesus taught of the wheat and the tares. Y'all remember that? All right, we're going to get the explanation of it here. We're going to get some clarity. So this is the explanation of the parable of the tares of the field. Verse 37 says, he answered to them and, and he said, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Highlight that. The harvest is the end of the age. So therefore we know we're getting a preview of Armageddon and the end and the harvest that's about to take place after that. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And he will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we give explanation to this that this is pointing to this harvest at the end of the age with Jesus and the angels and the angels doing the reaping harvesting, angels with Jesus taking the followers of Christ, angels by themselves 
gathering the lost, and then they'll face the great white throne judgment, of course, and be thrown into the lake of fire, all right? So here's what's interesting. If you look at this word ripe in chapter 14, back in, in Revelation that we read, the first word ripe, when, it's the, when the sickle was cast from Jesus, when it talks about that in chapter 14, that word ripe is the Greek word exrahino, and it literally means to be dried up. Think about that. Exrahino means dried up. Well, if you were harvesting grapes, that'd be a little late, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be real late. I mean, unless you want raisins, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you want raisins, you can harvest them and they're all dried up. That's cool. All right, but that's not what it's pointing to. It's pointing back to the wheat. Remember, the tares were the fake wheat. They look like wheat, but they're not. The wheat's the real stuff. When do you harvest wheat? When it's dried out, of course. But when it's dried out, get this. When you harvest wheat, when it's dried out, it points to it being ripe for a while, and you didn't harvest it when you could have. Think about that. So God waits until the last possible minute. There's some that could be harvested, but he waits until the end. Why? Because he wants people to be saved. He wants people to answer the call to repentance, even in the midst of the most trying time of the world. So he waits. It could have been harvested earlier, but he chooses to wait till it's dried up. That's when he harvests the righteous. Okay? Good point there through the Greek. But then the angels gathered the wicked. And of course, that lines up with what we just read in Matthew chapter 13. He uses grapes again, being in the wine press of the wrath. We just talked about that. Okay? And here's what's interesting. The word ripe here is a different Greek word than the ripe from when Jesus harvested. It says ripe here is the Greek word that simply means fully ripe or ready to harvest. In other words, there's no need to wait any longer to harvest them. Nobody else is going to answer the call to repentance. All the rest have a hardened heart, and they're against God, so it's time to reap. Does that make sense? A beautiful picture in God's word when you look at it. Then it talks about, in verse 20, about throwing into the wine press and being pressed out. And, of course, this alludes to many other passages. We won't have time to read because we're going to move along. But Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, when Jesus comes back, it says, He alone treads the wine press of the wrath of God. Who's crushing the grapes of the wicked? Jesus. Who's crushing them? Jesus. You mean meek, mild little Jesus, baby in a manger? Yeah, because he's God. Yes, he is grace and mercy and love, but he is also justice. Guys, he is. All right? He is the one that does this. You can read that in the passage in Isaiah chapter 63. You can read verses 2 through 3 and verse 6 as well. But it talks about the blood being splattered as high as a horse's bridle. It's not pointing to the blood flowing that high, but being splattered that high. Because in a wine press, what they really wanted to do was squish the grapes and not stain their clothes. Clothes was not like, you know, they didn't have TJ Maxx back then. They couldn't just go back and get them a new robe, that, you know, when they stained or junk. So they would pull their robe up, the women and kids, and they would go real slow trying to squish. And if the kids started jumping, they'd be like, Mom, hey, hey little Johnny, stop jumping. You're going to stain our clothes. All right? But when Jesus gets in there, and you can read Isaiah chapter 63, in his fury and in his justice over evil and over the hatred in men's hearts, he squashes them, and he doesn't care if it splatters. Okay? So that's why it's splattering as high as a horse's bridle. But then it says this 
It says that the blood is going to flow how far? 1,600 furlongs. Well, we all know what that means, so let's keep moving. Just kidding, all right? 1,600 furlongs is about 184 miles. From the northern border of Israel to the southern border is 184 miles. So the blood's going to flow all across Israel. So it gives the illusion that the battle of Armageddon is not just on this place of Megiddo, that it also, and you can see in Joel chapter three, that they'll be brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat. In other words, all the armies and kings of the nation are going to be all in Israel, surrounded Jerusalem. All right. It's going to be filled. So when God, when, when Jesus comes back and does this, that's why the blood's all over the whole nation of Israel. All right. Now, chapter 15 and 16, we can move much quicker to close up. All right, so let's read chapter 15, verses one through three. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. All right, so verse one, obviously now we're getting past here, the proliptic statements, now we're ready and we see, we come out of the interlude, now we're in chapter 15, we see the angels preparing, coming, getting ready to deliver this last wrath of God, okay? So we see it very clear that these seven angels have the last seven plagues of God's wrath and it will be completed all right, and that word means goal achieved. And what is that goal achieved? It's not just the destruction of the wicked. It's the redemption of the land and God's people. That's the ultimate goal. For what, 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 how did Jesus teach us to pray? Remember that? Your kingdom come on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the goal? God's kingdom to come to earth. The wicked have to be gone for God's kingdom to come to earth. He can't exist in the presence of evil, all right? So the goal is going to be completed with this. So there's purpose in this, all right? And everything's going to set the world back in more of a perfect order, how it was at the, in the garden. If you read Isaiah chapter 11, we don't, have to go back, we don't have time to go back to it today, but maybe later we will. It says the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Think about that. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. A child will lead them all. The lion will eat hay like a cow. Think about that. What is that alluding to? Animals ain't even eating each other no more. There's no pain. There's no, there's no torment, no destruction like that. This goes back to Genesis chapter 1 where the animals didn't eat each other then. So God sets it back into, into a perfect world, so to speak. All right? Verses 2 and 4. This is where we get the idea of people when they go to heaven having harps. You see the, the, like all the cartoons and stuff, everybody goes to heaven's got a little harp. All right, That's, that comes from this passage right here that we just read. I have a little harp in heaven and singing. All right, But this gives the idea of the martyrs of the tribulation, at least part of them. Because remember, we're still at the beginning point of the second half. So not all of them are dead yet that are going to die through the end. All right, but So at least part of them are here and they're singing before the throne of God. And what are they singing? This is important. A song of Moses and a song of the Lamb. What's the link in that? Moses and the Lamb, what would that be about? The link is deliverance and redemption. 
Because if you remember the story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt into the promised land, it happened after plagues were unleashed on the kingdom of Egypt and God destroyed their enemy and led them into the promised land. What's about to happen here? Some people are under a a hard slavery, oppression, and he's about to send plagues on the land. He's gonna defeat their enemy. and He's gonna lead them into the promised land of God's kingdom come to earth. That's the song of Moses and the lamb that they're singing. Isn't that beautiful? God's word come together. All right, let's look. Verse five through seven now. Let's read verses seven through eight in chapter 15, just to grasp that, and we'll talk a little bit about the in-between verses. Verses seven and eight says, then one of the four living creatures gave to him the seven, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. If you look back in verses five and six, you'll see that the temple was opened, okay? And it gave the idea of these, these angels coming out of the temple in the tabernacle of God in heaven. And when they came out, they had something. They were wearing something. They were wearing some fine linen, some pure bright linen, and they had chests girded with golden bands, okay? What does this point to? Hey, if God puts some details in God's word, in his word like that, there's a reason for it, okay? So this linen pointed to that that was wore by the priests, okay? So these were people that ministered in the temple of the Lord, all right? These angels, okay? So they had a golden sash around their chest. That points to royalty or an elevated status. So these angels were agents on a mission, okay, for the Lord, that they were used by God to come and do something. What does it say there that we verse, just read in, in verse 7? It said, this bowl is the full strength, and these bowls are full of the wrath of God. In other words, it's not partial this time. If you remember back to the trumpets, right? When all the trumpets and that wrath came, how, how much did it affect with most of those trumpets? A third. A portion. It's not a portion this time. This is the full cup, and it's going to affect everybody, except When we see the first one, it's not going to affect somebody, and we'll get to there in just a second. All right? Verse 8 closes chapter 15. It says, the temple is filled with smoke. What does that mean? And it even says it there. It says, the glory and the power of God fills the temple with smoke. And it says, none are able to enter until these seven bowls are complete. This isn't anything new. You can look back later and read Exodus chapter 40 verses 34 through 35, and this was in the time of Moses where he could not enter the tent of the meeting in the tabernacle because the cloud of the Lord was present and he couldn't go in. You could also read in 1 Kings chapter 8 in the temple of Solomon when it was being dedicated that the power and the glory of the Lord again in a cloud was so strong that the priest could not go in and enter. What is this all pointing to? From the time this starts until Jesus returns, nobody can interrupt God's plan. Did you get that? Nobody can interrupt it or change it. Victory is claimed right there. Let's go into chapter 16 as we close, all right? And we're going to point these out individually because we know we're going to see the bowls. And I'll let you go back and read, to, read the whole chapter at length at once on your own. But we're going to point these out individually because we see these vials, these bowls of God's wrath that are going to be poured out. And this is what we need to know and understand about these. They're poured out in rapid succession, okay? That there's no time or no, not much time in between each one. 
Here's the other thing we need to know. They have purpose. They have extreme purpose. Yes, it's wrath of God for sin and non-repentance, but it also is going to lead the armies of the world into Armageddon, okay? And we're going to see that at the end. So, because, and you're going to see why, many scholars believe that these seven bowls, these seven vials of God's wrath occur at the very end of the tribulation, probably the last month to two months. So we're looking at the last four to eight weeks on earth right here, okay, where this is being poured out, and you'll see why. The first one that comes out, first of all, you see a great voice from the temple, all right, that, that comes and declares it. Who's in the temple? We just said only the power and the glory of God. Nobody else can get in there right now. So whose voice is this? It's the voice of God, okay, coming. So with these bowls, and the first one are loathsome sores, okay? If you have a New Living Translation or another translation, it may say that these are malignant sores. These leads to suppurated wounds. These are wounds that ooze pus, okay? And get this, it only comes on who? Those who take the mark. Do you see that? Can you imagine being a saint at this time? Can you imagine not being a saint at this time? And these sores come up on you, and you see somebody else that you know claims to be a follower of Christ, and they're, they're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Where'd you get those? Why has everybody got them? They don't fall upon those who didn't take the mark, guys. So what does that make this? An object lesson. To teach somebody that Hey, you got it wrong, that I'm God, and that I take care of my people. It's an object lesson, guys. It's with purpose. It's not, these wrath, these bowls, aren't just God just cosmic killjoy from heaven. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to whip you here. No, these are very specific. With the purpose of almost still trying to call people to repentance. Do you get that? The sores didn't happen to them. Oh, God, you must be God. I repent while there's time. They still won't do it. God's grace and mercy, man. People still won't do it. Second vial turns the sea to blood. And not just any blood. It says it's the blood of a dead man. And every living creature dies. What's the blood of a dead man? Well, I don't know about you, I've never been around a dead body, but I'm smart enough to know this, that when the blood stops pumping through the body, what happens to it? Coagulates and gels, okay? So the, earth, so the sea doesn't just turn to a bloody liquid, it turns to a bloody gel coagulated mess. It's unusable. All the oceans, all the salt water is to that, all right? And that's important because it leads to this. Remember, the trumpet was just a third. This one's the whole ocean. Now, third vial says all the fresh water is going to be turned to blood. You see it? The third bowl, all the rivers and springs of water, they became blood. But notice this time it didn't say blood as a dead man. It just said blood. Why is this important? Because this blood stays liquid, bloody water. So in other words, all the drinking water on earth is contaminated now. There's no fresh drinking water. And you can't just go get some seawater and boil it and turn it into drinking water because that's all gelled up. You get it? Fresh drinking water is now bloody. Why? The angel says why. All right? He tells him. 
And I heard an angel in the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. There's a purpose for it. It's again, it's another object lesson. What is it? Hey, these people have have shed innocent blood. And we know God says in his word, I hate hands that shed innocent blood. And they've shed the innocent blood of the saints in wickedness, and they've caused them to bleed. So God, in his justice, because the angel said everything he does is justice, he gives them what they've done to drink. They have to drink bloody water to live, or they'll die. So now they're forced to drink that which they've done. See the purpose. Number four, the fourth vial that comes out says that there's some sun that's going to score. So in the, fifth, in the fifth angel, I'm sorry, it says, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over those plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. This passage points to a searing. This Greek word means seared, and it points to severe burns, like third-degree burns from the sun. And the point is here, they still didn't repent. How much is it going to take for somebody to break their knee and say, I see it now? Their hearts are so hard and evil, they still won't do it. Number five. It says, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 11 is how we know these are happening in rapid succession. Do you see that? They still have the pain from their burns, and they still have their sores on them. And now here's this coming. And they still wouldn't repent. And this one is another object lesson, all right? Because where is it poured out? On the beast's kingdom. It turns it into darkness. Where's the beast's kingdom that we just talked about? In the three nations, the three horns that he plucked, right? Seven will give him their authority in the second half of the tribulation, but he has his own mini kingdom, an eighth kingdom. Remember that from, from chapter 17 that we'll look at again next week. So his kingdom is either these three nations that he completely rules, or it could be the 10 that all of which have given him his authority. But it's another object lesson where the darkness is poured out over his kingdom. The rest of the earth sees that, hey, this guy was a fake and a phony. God is coming against him. Does that make sense? Again, there's purpose in this vial. Some would say that this Greek word can also point to um, he blinded them from the truth. So they say this metaphoric. It could be, but likely it's not because, as you can see, these men have already been blinded from the truth and not repenting. Okay? But then also, every single one of these vials has happened literally. So why would just one of them happen metaphorically? It's going to happen literally. Okay? Another object lesson on the beast kingdom that they're dark. God did this in Egypt. Remember one of the plagues that he made it dark there, but not for the Israelites. You remember that? God can do what he wants and his kingdom will be dark, physically dark, while the rest of the world has light. All right. You can see there's a lot of explanation in these bowls. These are not just random shots from the Lord, but they still curse God and refuse to repent. Number six says that this angel poured out his bowl and the great river Euphrates and its water dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared to come in. 
A lot of people point to the fact that the Euphrates is drying up now and be like, oh, see, it's coming. No, we're not in the last of the tribulation yet, guys, okay? All right, that just comes and goes. It dries up, it waters. That's not it. But there's coming a time where it's gonna be full and God's gonna immediately dry it up with the bowl, all right? And it's gonna open the path for the kings of the east to come in against Israel to lead to the battle of Armageddon. Does that make sense? But they don't come on their own. It's not like, oh man, we were waiting for that bad boy to dry up so we could all go attack Israel. Now finally we can do it. That's not it. They still have to be enticed. Did you see that? It says, then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's a Roscoe Pico train. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them into the battle of the great day of God Almighty. How did they come? By seducing spirits, by evil spirits to lead them there. Men's heart were hard and deceived and they were listening to evil and not truth. And that's what would ultimately draw them in for the seventh one, which was and is the final bowl. All right, I'm gonna point out real quick, I know we're getting short on time, but Jesus interrupts this vision. If you have a red letter Bible, verse 15, who's speaking right here? It's Jesus. And he's gonna say something, it's almost kind of like a, woo, we interrupt this program to give you a special message. Because what he's gonna say here has nothing to do kind of with what's going on. So Jesus is gonna come in here and he's gonna, hold on, I got something set. What is it? Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. Remember, this book of Revelation was written by John and was sent out to every church. Who's he interrupting to speak to, guys? Church, be ready for the rapture. Don't miss Jesus. Be ready because I'm coming like a thief in the night. And you better be ready. You better repent and be on your knees. You better be stop, not just playing church when I come back. You better be serious about your faith. Because this ain't a game. This ain't about entertainment. This ain't about just going to a church that has a bunch of cool programs. This is about getting on your knees and following God and digging in the word and becoming a disciple of Jesus. Be ready. He said, keep watching. Then he said, keep your garments. What does that mean? It means keep clothed in righteousness. Put on the nature of Christ means walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Let me find you being sanctified and living holy lives before the, the, the throne of God when I come. Because why? Because it's legalism? No, because it's proof that you're saved. Because it's proof that I'm in you and, and the Holy Spirit of God is in you and you're living a life like that. Number three, he says, otherwise you're going to be naked. What is that pointing back to? Adam and Eve and their shame. When they sinned before God and they were trying to do things to cover themselves. You know, we, we're good at trying to do works and cover ourselves up. But we're really naked before God because our righteous acts are nothing but filthy rags before God. And the only thing that makes us clean and the only thing that makes us whole is the perfect blood of the spotless lamb who is shamed. Have you been covered in the blood of Jesus? Because there's a time in your life where you're falling on your knees and you've surrendered your life to Jesus. You've repented and you've made him Lord of your life. That's what Jesus interrupts the program to say. Do it now, because I come like a thief in the night. Verse 16, we get back to the vision that John had and is setting up everything for the end as the seventh vial, seventh bowl is poured out. Or again, a loud voice from the temple. We know that's the voice of God because nobody comes in there until this is done. And this is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's a completed action with continued action in the future. So he's gonna finish something, but it shows continued action 
until what's going to happen in the future. Jesus comes back. The return, the second coming. All right? Verse 18 through 20 says there's storms, there's lightnings and thunder. It says there's an earthquake. Five things happen. One, the great city splits into three parts. What's the great city? It's Jerusalem. We know that definitively for a fact from Revelation chapter 11, where the, the two witnesses laid in the streets of the city, and it says it's where their Lord was crucified, and he called it the great city, just like it does here. So it's definitively Jerusalem. Jerusalem splits in three parts. It says all the cities of the world collapse in this earthquake. Babylon is destroyed. We'll get to that later next week. Number four, islands disappear. Five, mountains are removed. And then it says this, huge hailstones fall. The weight of a talent. We all know what that is again, right? Nope. <laughs> What's the weight of a talent? It's about 100 pounds, all right? So to have a hailstone that's around 100 pounds, it has to be around 18 inches in diameter, like a beach ball. The largest hailstones ever to fall on the earth were in Bangladesh, I think it was 1986. They were 2.2 pounds and six inches. The largest ones in the United States to fall were 1.67 pounds, five and a half inches. These are monsters, boulders falling. It's going to crush things. And all this is happening simultaneously at the end as Jesus is going to return. And then we know that it says that at the end that they're still going to speak blasphemies to God. But then at the end when Jesus speaks, then it's all finished. There is no battle of Armageddon, guys. It's a delusion that is some kind of long held out battle. It's simply God, Jesus, landing on the Mount of Olives and speaking his word and it's done. All right. So the lost survivor, these lost survivors still curse God. And when Jesus speaks, the final harvest will come that we saw in chapter 14. Application. As we close it. We're not going to face anything like that on our time on earth, guys. Unless you're here for the end. And I hope you won't be. But we're not going to face that. But what we will face is still hard times in this life. Can I get an amen? What we still will face in this life are difficult circumstances, adversity, and even persecution. Even the Bible says all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in his word, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you and I will become spiritually mature and complete, not lacking anything. So oftentimes, you and I, we ask for God to remove circumstances from our life, don't we? But what if we started praying a little different? And instead of asking him to remove circumstances, we ask him, Lord, would you develop a character in me, a faith in me, a strength in me that I don't have on my own so that I can face these circumstances like they need to be faced? That would be a better prayer. Because we know... That through Jesus, we have the victory. This whole message, this whole sermon series is titled Overcomers. Because through him, we're more than conquerors. Through him that loves us. And then nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we know we can claim that promise. We can claim promises that if Christ is for us, who can be against us? That no weapon formed against us shall prosper. That he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Did you get that? He doesn't remove our enemies, and your enemies definitely not be better be sitting down at a table with you, all right? He prepares that table for us where we can eat in the presence of our enemies when they're around us. Did you get that? God's faithful. 
You and I can rest and eat in the presence of our sovereign, victorious Savior, Jesus, even though the enemies surround us. So I'm going to tell you, family, it's time to pull up the table, pull up a seat to the table of God and to eat. Yes, even in the presence of life's challenging and difficult circumstances, but to eat and to eat well. Look at the person beside you and tell them, let's pull up a table and eat. Pull up a seat and eat. Pull up a seat and eat. And let's hold on and be strong. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. I know I'm over. And I just wonder if there's anybody in here that may answer the call of Jesus in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, where he interrupted and said, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed are those who watch, who keep their garments and are not found naked. I wonder if that's you. And you need to answer that call from your Lord today and you need to surrender your life to him right now. If you do, don't leave this place before doing that and doing business with the Lord. I'm gonna lead you through a prayer from your heart to God's heart. I want you to do business with God. Or if you're here and you say, Brad, I walked with the Lord previously. I committed my life to Christ and there was a time where I was on fire for the Lord, but lately I've drifted and I've walked away. And today I wanna make a change and I wanna come running back to Jesus. And I wanna repent and turn and make him everything in my life and live a life for him and rededicate my life. If that's you, I'm gonna ask you, to pray the same prayer from your heart to God's heart and do business with him right now. To receive him for the first time or to rededicate your life, just boldly, unashamed, do business with God. Say, Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you, my savior. I've messed up and fallen short of your glory. And thank you, Lord, for taking my place on the cross. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, the spotless lamb, to die in my place, to take the penalty, the full cup of the wrath of God for my sin upon himself so that I could be set free, so that I could be redeemed and forgiven. And Lord, thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God. And Lord, he stands in victory over all hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to stand in victory with him right now. So Lord, my commitment to you is from this day forward, with every step I take and every breath I make, it will all be for your glory alone. Help me to hold on and be strong. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Amen. If that's you and you did business with God right here today for the first time or you rededicated your life boldly and unashamed, you should raise your hand. Just making a stand, say, I did that today and I'm not ashamed of it. Amen. You put your hands down. Amen, church. Can we give Jesus a round of applause? He deserves, he's worthy, he is Lord, he is victorious, and he wants to strengthen you and me to hold on and be strong even in the circumstances that we face. I hope you learned something today, but more importantly, I hope you have some application to go out and encourage you and me to stand for Jesus in this world we live in. That means let's go make an impact for Jesus. Hey, you're gonna to wanna to be here next week because we're gonna learn who Mystery Babylon is, Babylon the Great, the main two chapters that people get so confused on and arm wrestle over. We're gonna see clear, clearly in God's word who they are that in fact, the harlot of Babylon and the city of Babylon are two different things. You're gonna see why and who they are. So come back next week. We'll see you next Sunday.
Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ.